the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, a good piece by uh, Tony Mills and uh, Mark Mills uh, over at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, uh, about this, uh, I read a National Review about Operation Warp Speed. I was having this conversation with a friend over the weekend, uh, talking about um, uh, other neurological diseases and just uh, other diseases generally. That uh, if there was an Operation Warp Speed devoted to sort of a, a progression of the diseases that are the most devastating, that afflict the most people, could we not achieve what uh, we've been able to achieve with respect to other diseases? Uh, what we've achieved with COVID-19. And that's sort of the topic of uh, this piece, COVID-19 vaccines and overnight success decades in the making, as most quote-unquote overnight successes are. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Tony Mills, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and senior fellow at the Pepperdine University's School of Public Policy, the Pepperdine Waves. Tony Mills, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, the uh, vaccines that were... uh, Overnight successes, decades in the making. Uh, explain. Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say, of course, is that the timeline of the vaccines is really astonishing. It sort of defies the received wisdom about how long it takes to develop these kinds of medical inventions. And, you know, we're talking under a year. But I think to get a fuller picture on how that was possible, it's important to look at what the antecedents were. And what's clear here is that we had decades of research, and a lot of that research was truly scientific research as opposed to research directed at inventing a particular technology like a mRNA vaccine. So when we have crises and we need government to act quickly in cooperation with the private sector to do something like this, I think the lesson is that what we need to also have is this kind of reservoir of scientific knowledge and scientific research that takes years and years to really develop. And so um, there's no question. And so it also seems to me, without um, going back to some of the rank prioritization of other diseases, that um, there's some other lessons to be learned from everything that has transpired from Operation Warp Speed now to the deployment of the vaccine. Were we ever able to do or, or demanded to do something on this scale again? Some ethical questions as well as logistical questions, uh, you know, feasibility questions about the deployment of something on this scale and, you know, prioritization based on what we know about who's most uh, vulnerable, the enlisting of private sector infrastructure, as opposed to you know, sort of relying on a central command structures, government structures to deploy something like this. You know, other things that maybe are, are takeaways, even as we're living through this in real time. Absolutely. And really, the focus of our piece is looking at the underlying scientific and technological innovations. And there's no question that the larger project of not just 
inventing, developing, scaling, and deploying, but administering this vaccine uh, and grappling with all those ethical, political, practical, and logistical challenges is not trivial. But it is striking, that without downplaying those challenges in any way, uh, it is striking that, in retrospect, that would prove to be the most difficult part rather than the development of a vaccine in such short order, um, something that, uh, you know, before it happened might have seemed like an impossible timeline. Uh, but you're absolutely right that, it, you know, the invention of, of, in this case, a vaccine is far from the end of the story. Um, and there's a lot to be said, a lot to learn about how we can uh, handle a large-scale problem like this, um, hopefully more effectively in the future. Uh, then, so how do we be, you know, sort of uh, as effective as we can be with scarce resources like money and scientific expertise? There have been stories in the recent weeks about uh, the prospect of real progress in, with respect to a, a cure for MS. There's been talk of uh, uh, development of a drug for dementia that sort of revitalizes parts of the brain that have gone dormant. I mean, you know, do we do we think about this based on the number of Americans or the number of human beings worldwide impacted, the severity, the you know, how, how do we prioritize those scarce resources to try to uh, solve uh, other mysteries with respect to curing ailments? I think the temptation will be coming out of this to look at the timeline of the invention of this vaccine and say, wow, you know, if we could do that in under a year. Surely we can do that in any other domain to solve any other kind of problem. And so the temptation will be to say, let's have another Operation Warp Speed to solve problem X or problem Y. The point isn't that that doesn't necessarily work, but the, the question that we have to ask is why were we able to do this? And we're looking at other historical precedents for doing comparable kinds of things, like during World War II, inventing radar and, and the atom bomb and so on. And if we ask why, I think what we, what we find out is that Often, these kinds of inventions come from, as I said before, decades of scientific research, often research that has no obvious connection, perhaps to any kind of technological inventions, much less the ones that they would one day enable. You can see that with the, the, the growth of molecular uh, genetics uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, including the discovery of mRNA. The scientists who were pursuing that work weren't trying to invent a vaccine. They were trying to advance our understanding of nature. We make the same argument about atomic physics and the atom bomb or electromagnetism and radar, radio. Uh, and so I think, though it is perhaps less politically satisfying, um, I think it's important if we want to have more of these kinds of breakthrough overnight successes that we lay the groundwork by investing in basic scientific research, even basic scientific research that might not obviously be connected to the problems that we're trying to solve. And so, for example, to make this concrete in the modern context with the COVID-19 vaccines, you go back six decades and to Francis Crick uh, of, you know, Crick and Watson double helix fame uh, and uh, the, the study of the relationship between DNA and RNA sort of providing the the seedlings of uh, what would become the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. Absolutely. And, and again, this is not to discount enormous amounts of uh, medical biotechnological research that's been going on for decades, including on mRNA, mRNA vaccines specifically, the kinds of vaccines that we, um, uh, that, that Moderna and Pfizer developed for COVID-19. But yes, if you fast, if you go all the way back to 1960, um, that's when you had this discovery uh, there's a kind of you know, famous in, in, in the world of science meeting on Good Friday in 1960 in Cambridge of a bunch of biologists discussing cutting-edge research in fields that at the time were thought to be related but, but distinct. And this aha moment when Sidney Brenner uh, and Crick 
uh, uh, realized um, that what what had been hit upon was the existence of messenger RNA, um, and that this later uh, is what would end up being used uh, in, in vaccines, right, as a way of delivering genetic information to the body to develop an immune response to to a disease. Now, they weren't trying to develop a vaccine when they had that insight. They were just they were trying to understand the molecular structure of life. And in fact, this story is really just a piece of a broader uh, uh, revolution, really, in the life sciences. The post-war period was an enormous, there was an enormous growth in our understanding of biological processes, molecular genetics, um, and that whole infrastructure of scientific knowledge is what's underlying uh, this directed research to develop an mRNA vaccine today. And you can see the same thing happening in other, other cases throughout history. In World War II, when the government directed research to develop radar or the bomb uh, or computing devices, they were able to draw on scientific knowledge that had been accrued over the course of decades, really coming out of one of the most momentous scientific advances since the 17th century, from the late 19th until World War II. So those, uh, again, it's not an entirely satisfying political lesson because uh, these, this kind of research takes a long time. But you know, to kind of put it glibly, if you want to have more of these technological innovations, you need to have more scientific revolutions too, because that's often what we're drawing on when we're when we are uh, inventing these kinds of things. And when you when we look at big pharma companies, you know how much of that long view and that investment in general science is something they are willing to do as compared to trying to solve short-term problems uh, because they need to get drugs to market to make money. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. So I think the private sector spends an enormous amount on, on research and development um, uh, more than the federal government uh, now. Um, however, the vast majority of that, uh, is, as you say, directed at the kind of applied research and development side of the spectrum, as, as it should be. Um, Basic science, research into our basic understanding of nature, whether it's in physics or biology, chemistry, even mathematics, um, although the private sector does support that kind of research, it tends to shy away from it because the returns on investment are not as obvious in a meaningful time frame. A lot of those discoveries won't turn out to be useful. Some of them will turn out to be enormously useful. Um, and so this is really where I think the government has an important role to play. Uh, in funding uh, basic science, which is a public good, um, which is not to discount the role of philanthropic organizations or the private sector. Uh, there's, there's no reason not to pursue a kind of all-of-the-above all strategy there. Uh, but the federal government, I think, has a unique role. He is Tony Mills, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, senior fellow at Pepperdine University School of Public Policy. Tony Mills, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.